although difficult to find, uh, good movies. There's just something that is just so fun, be it at home or in a movie theater, to settle in and to hear and watch a story be told. And if you notice, there's usually three parts to most movies. There's the lead-up, where you get all the information about the side stories and even the key details of the main story. And that's the predominant time it takes in a film that you watch as it brings everything up to speed and you see all those lead-up stories happening. Uh, and then undoubtedly you see the crescendo. And perhaps even some of you are thinking of your favorite films that you love to watch. You think of the crescendo. It's the main piece where there's the main event of, that keeps you on the edge of your seat as you're seeking to know what it is that happens in this story that's being unfolded before you. And then, of course, there's the end, where you see all the pieces fall into place. Uh, good or bad or indifferent, you see the result of the lead-up and the crescendo having taken place inside this film. Uh, the sermon today is going to somewhat mimic those things. We're going to see a lead-up of a, the main story, as well as some sub-stories. And, of course, we know this to be the Word of God indeed being true. Uh, we're going to see a crescendo, and the crescendo of today's sermon is going to be a message that Paul preached many years ago in a place called Athens. Uh, and inside of that message, we're going to see the main things. The main event of today's sermon is going to be the, the things that Paul was preaching in Athens. And then we're going to see the end of where those things all fall into place as a result of that main crescendo. And I believe that it would be my assignment from God this morning is to to look at those things that Paul preached and for us just to take a moment to notice that for those who reject God, that these realities are the absolute dread of them. But that for the believer, for the person who has turned from sin and come to God with a contrite heart and ask God for the forgiveness that only he can offer, that these exact same realities are the greatest wonder that we can't even possibly imagine. So, if you're in Acts chapter 17, find your way to verse 10. If you remember from last time, uh, Paul and his missionary group, has, they've just got done starting two churches. One of those churches was in Philippi, and you'll remember that the first converts, the first people that were part of the church in Philippi was a, li a lady by the name of Lydia. She was a successful business lady, as well as a Philippian jailer, a Roman jailer. Uh, who was converted also. So a strange arrangement for the first ever people in that church there in Philippi, but we know that that church grew and was successful. Uh, we also left off with Paul having started the church in Thessalonica. It was made up initially of Greeks and the late leading women of the community, as well as Jason. I don't know if you remember Jason or not, as it was in Philippi, that Lydia's house was where the first church first started. It was her house that was the hub, her being this successful business lady. We imagine her house might have been large. We don't really know much about Jason other than he had a backbone, and he was willing to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what it was and the great worth of the gospel, but there in Thessalonica, it was the Greeks, the leading women in the community, as well as Jason, and it was his house that was the hub for the church there in Thessalonica, and it too grew to be a strong church and perhaps even arguably the strongest church that we know of in Scripture. And then we come to verse 10 of Acts chapter 17, where we read, and it says, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, 
in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul and Berea, they came there also. I don't know if you remember last time there was the lewd fellows of the baser sort, and they were sent there to Berea to give Paul trouble there also and stirred up the crowds as it was that they did in Thessalonica also. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So we're at the point now where we're in the lead-up of this story. We're going to see some subplots that happen along the way as we learn something from God's Word, as well as we see a picture formulating our minds that move towards the crescendo of Paul's sermon. Uh, We know that the Bereans, this place in which Paul was preaching, If you're a Christian or if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that Bereans are remembered with such a positive understanding. And the reason is for what we just read, that they were a fair-minded people. Uh, They wanted to know what the truth was. There was something about the folks in Berea, and I think even one of the groups here, I think it's the group that meets in this classroom here, uh, Bruce will commonly reference you as Bereans. And that's a good term. He's not making fun of you. That's a good thing to be called as a Christian, someone who wants to know what the Word of God is. Someone who hears things and they seek the scriptures to know whether or not the thing that they are hearing is true. And that's what was taking place there in Berea. And that's a good thing. That's something that we all ought to be doing. Uh, Don't believe it just because Pastor Ben says it. Believe it because you search the scriptures and you've heard and seen the word of God. That's something worth being encouraged among us. Another thing that we see here is the way in which I guess the devil works. Uh, the magistrates in Thessalonica stirred up the lewd fellows of the baser sort. I'm just going to keep saying that forever. I love saying that that phrase. That's a great line of words. And uh, and when they got word, this is just how the devil works. That things were going well in Berea and that people were coming to know Jesus. They sent people from Thessalonica to Berea just to cause trouble, to stir up the crowds in the same way that they did in Thessalonica to hinder the work of the ministry of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, you can probably think to things in your life where you say, yeah, I get that. When you seek to desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. And that's just the way that the devil works. And I say as a Christian fellowship together, our attitude about it ought not to be this shirking in the corner, afraid of what the devil might do. We ought to say, bring it on. We're faithful. We're steadfast. Paul and Silas and Timothy ought to be our example in some of these things. Then those who are transporting Paul, they take him to Athens. And again, we see that as the moment Paul gets to Athens, he formerly left them in Berea. uh, Silas and Timothy left them in Berea. But as soon as he gets to Athens, he says, I need those guys here. Go back, get them, bring them to me, and do it with all speed, Paul says. Uh, So yet again, we see Christian fellowship was key in the early church. And it ought to be for us too. This was something that was very clear for Paul. The moment he gets to Athens, he wants his fellow workers in the ministry, Silas and Timothy, the young preachers, to be there with him as well. Look to verse 16 as we continue to see this story unpack as we see the lead up of it. It says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. 
Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? They said of Paul. Uh, Others said, He seems to be proclaiming a a foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear of some new thing. So this Athens place was the heart of the time of the Greek Empire. It was definitely the, the heart of what drove the culture in its interests and its likes. And it was also very much of a hub of all political happenings. And Paul is stirred very deeply. His spirit is provoked inside of him when he sees that this place called Athens is given over to idols. Uh, it was said long ago, a quote of Athens, it was, says, it was said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Uh, this gives us some insight of just what it was like to, to, for Athens to have given themselves over to the worship of idols. The last lines we read there of for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent time in nothing else but to tell or hear of some new thing sounds somewhat like a college campus. They're just given over to whatever new thing that they want to hear or just to express what they know. And this was the condition that Paul was distressed by of Athens' attempt to satisfy the human heart with idols. Uh, And and we ought to just put the car in park as we just take a moment to survey the lead up of this story, shall we? Uh, It's awesome and very convicting to see the way in which Paul's heart was provoked inside of him. Uh, Hear me and hear me say clearly that missions is important. Uh, A church cannot be a biblical church unless unless missions is an important thing to them. But I say as a church, we ought to have the same heart as Paul. And that when we survey people and places having given themselves over to idolatry around us, it ought to provoke and stir something up inside of our hearts. Missions are important. I could never... I could never express to you enough just how important it is that, that we be about the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's important if you agree, which you ought to say amen, okay? That, that's vitally, vitally important, but we also equally ought to remember that people are going to hell just as fast here in America. Uh, did you know that if you go to certain areas of Columbus during certain times of the year, uh, you will go there and you will see certain buses arrive And the people getting off the bus will be black teenagers. And what you'll find is that they are youth groups, Christian youth groups from Africa coming to America for a missions trip. Uh, That's the condition. That is the true condition as God has blessed the church in Africa in certain regions. They have become far more Christian in certain areas, particular areas of Africa than we are as a whole by far in America. So let us be faithful. Let's just let... Paul convict us by the Holy Spirit using Paul. Let's allow and ask that the Holy Spirit would convict us in the same way that God would provoke inside of us our spirit when we see even in our town, even in this place, people being given over to idolatry. 
Look at verse 17 of the verses that we just read. And we see that this result of Paul's spirit being provoked inside of him, it caused him to confront the culture on three different fronts. One of which being religious, the other of which being civic, and the other being that of political front. In all three of these fronts, Paul was confronting the culture. Look at verse 17. It says, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue, there's the religious front upon which he was confronting them, with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace, there's the civic portion of it, daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and then it gives us the rest of the story. And we understand that they're going to take him to a certain place, which we'll say more of in a moment, and it'll become very, very clear that he was confronting them on the political basis as well. Uh, now let me just say a word about these Epicureans and Stoics. Who are these philosophers? Uh, the Epicureans of those days, they were a sect of philosophers that believed in a randomness. For example, they would view the creation of a city, the way that they philosophized in their minds in the absence of the wisdom of God. They would philosophize in their minds that the creation of a big and powerful city was a randomized collection of events happening such that people would just get together and then formulate unity and then create and build this great big city, but that it all came from randomness. Uh, if you're thinking that that sounds suspiciously like uh, evolution of our day, you'd be right. Some very different things in which they believe, but the spirit behind it was very, very similar. This was of the Epicureans of the Stoics that was started by a man named Zeno a long, long time ago. They had more of a pantheistic belief, meaning that they believed that God was everything and that God was in everything. Uh, their philosophy would have most aligned in today's world with that of Oprah Winfrey in saying that you have to believe your truth and that everybody gets to determine your own truth and that everyone intrinsically is a sort or a kind of God and that God is everything and that God is in everything including all people and we obviously know that not to be the case that was what these stoic people believe but one way or the other it was very clearly understood that these philosophers uh, were very much influential in the political realm many of them very likely were politicians themselves and the reason we know this is because they take Paul to this place called the Arabogus uh, this is also known as Mars Hill, and I believe we have a picture of this. Guys, go ahead and pull that up for us if we have that. It's the picture of the big rock. It's hard to miss. Uh, this is what the Bible just got done talking about of this place called Arapagus. It's also called Mars Hill, and this is a picture from modern day. If you were to visit Athens, which is you can see the city in the background, uh, this big rock uh, is exactly where they took Paul. And this big rock, it's important to understand, this place called Arapagus, it was very much in the day considered to be in the way you and I would think of the Oval Office. It was where political happenings would take place, among other meetings, but predominantly it was a place of political meeting. And it kind of makes sense, assuming that, the, say, the shrubbery was similar to the way in which it was there. It was very convenient to have a bunch of people that you could address all at the same time up on that big rock. And this is where they bring Paul. These philosophers, these politicians, they take Paul and they set him on top of that rock, which you can go to today. Not sure if it's dangerous in that area of the world right now, as it is commonly the case in these areas. But they put him on that rock and they say to Paul, tell us more about this. 
Uh, you're preaching this Jesus and this resurrection from the dead. We want to know what it is that you're preaching to us is what these philosophers and these politicians are saying. So we see very clearly that Paul was confronting them on not just a religious front or a civic front, but also a political one as well. Paul's spirit is provoked inside of him. We've seen all the lead-ups, haven't we? His spirit is provoked inside of him as a result of the idolatry that this city, Athens, had given themselves over to all those years ago. And then we've come up now to the crescendo of this message, this main point that we'll get to, the main part, which is Paul's message. So if you're ready, say amen. I'm glad that a few of us are ready. Here we go. Verse 22. And we picture in our minds Paul up there on that big rock. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, and the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The things first that Paul outlines in the crescendo of this message, of this story that we're watching unfold before us. Paul outlines is that God is omnipotent, that God is omniscient, and that God is omnipresent. If you've been a believer for a while, these might, terms might be familiar to you. And whether or not they are or not, that's okay. We're going to go through them and reference them so you have an understanding. Excuse me. So that you have an understanding of what it is that Paul is saying about God. First of which, you can look back to verse 40, 24 of our text, of God being omnipotent, which this word means power unlimited, that God has within himself power that is unlimited. Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Uh, the, the false gods that the Athenians were worshipping of those days, they, they maintained some of these attributes, but not all of them. And Paul goes through to say, the God that you must worship, the one and only true God, he encompasses within himself all of these things perfectly. And the first of which is that he is omnipotent. He is full of power. It was by him and through him that all the world was made. And it was him that gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is omnipotent. We understand this to mean that he is all-powerful. Also, we understand that Paul was telling them that God is omniscient, meaning that his knowledge is unlimited. That God is unlimited in his knowledge. Look to verse 26, where Paul says, and it says, And he made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times 
and the boundaries of their dwellings. Paul says this God who not only has within himself all power, he also has within himself all knowledge, even to know when people's pre-appointed times would be and the boundaries for which they would live inside of these things, Paul says, resided in the mind of God before creation ever began. He is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. His knowledge is unlimited. And the support for this scripturally is is unable to be counted. I'll give you one of millions, one of thousands of examples we see of all these things in the manifold wisdom of God. Psalm 147 verse 5, as it speaks of something of this omnipotence and this omniscience, the Bible says, great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Say amen if you understand what I'm preaching to you so far. Paul says that he is omnipotent. He's full of power. And he's omniscient, he's full of knowledge, and also that he is omnipresence. I don't know about you, but this is the one I have traditionally been more familiar with, perhaps you as well. Uh, This word omnipresent means that his presence is unlimited, that he is everywhere. Verse 27 of our text, Acts 17, 27, it says, So that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. It says in Jeremiah 23, 24, speaking to us something of this omnipresence. God says, can anyone hide himself in the secret place so that I shall not see him? Says the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. So we've seen thus far from Paul's sermon, the crescendo of this story. That God's power, his knowledge, and his presence are all unlimited. And for those that are in rebellion against God, those who have rejected His free gift of grace and have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, these truths of God are your greatest dread. Because it's a dreadful thing to think that this God that's all so good is all-powerful. And He maintains inside of Himself all power. It's a dreadful thing to know that His presence is unlimited, that that He's seen everything that we do, even the things that we think are just inside of our heads, that, that people have a tendency to think that God is unaware of. He's also full of knowledge, even the things that we didn't actively do and carry out. God in His perfect knowledge saw all of it in His perfect knowledge. He saw even down to our thoughts. These realities of God being omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, these things are the dread of those who reject God. And the thing that makes it the greatest dread is because God is good. That's the worst part of all this is that God is good for those that reject Christ and the free gift of grace that He offers that have tuned Him out and and continued in unrighteousness and suppressed, pressed down what is true, what is absolutely true of God because of the sake of of unrighteousness, these things are the greatest dread that anyone could possibly imagine. But for the believer, let me take a big moment to shift gears here. For the person who has come to God with a contrite heart, for believers, for those that are his children, these attributes could not get any more wonderful. We can't even comprehend How wonderful these things are. How wonderful is it that our God, the one who redeems and rescues us, is full of all power. 
That's awesome. It's wonderful that this God that loves us is also full of all power. Not just all power is He full of. His knowledge is unlimited. How comforting is that to know that when you and I go through all kinds of things in life, things that we do not understand, and if you've never gone through anything you don't understand, you're probably dealing with a real honesty problem in your life, but just wait. You'll probably go through something real soon that's a very difficult thing in life that you don't understand completely. I even think that just comes to mind right now, even people that are probably watching our live stream right now, friends of mine who have dealt with some a long line of injuries, and you, and you just wonder to yourself, why would God allow so many, in succession of one another, so many injuries, so many trips to the hospital, but as the child of God, we get to rest and rest fully in the knowledge that He knows all of it. This is wonderful. It's wonderful to know that He is everywhere. Just think about how glorious these realities would be for Daniel in the lion's den. He wasn't alone down in that den. Why? Because the Lord fills the earth and the heavens. There's nowhere that Daniel could be thrown that he could somehow escape or somehow they could get rid of Daniel from the presence of Almighty God. Daniel knew that God was there with him. He knew that God was able to have all power to shut the mouths of the lion, that he was omnipresent. He was there, he had all power, and he had perfect knowledge to know what the after story of all that was going to be. The list goes on and on. Paul and Silas, who we recently studied in Acts, in the Philippian prison before the Philippian church started with the jailer and Lydia and all those folks that we've recently studied. They're in there in the inner prison, and it's midnight. How comforting. I just think that maybe some of these truths of God that they know that God is everywhere. It's not as if they can put them in the inner prison prison and God can't get in. What a wonderful thing to know that God is omnipresent. What a wonderful thing it was for Paul and Silas to know that in God's perfect knowledge, he understood exactly why all these things were taking place. And boy, they experienced God's being full of power, didn't they? As the hinges of those prisons broke and all the chains of the prisoners were loosed. What a great thing. These things could not get more wonderful to those who have come to God with a contrite heart, with respect to their sin, who have repented of sin and trusted the Savior. These, one, not, these realities are indeed wonderful. But the sermon doesn't end there. Look to verse 28. It says, For in him, Paul says to these philosophers and politicians and all those that are listening to him on that big rock, Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Somebody say amen. Uh, another piece that would be worth us noting here as we hone in on the next thing that Paul was making plain to those that he was preaching to. Uh, Paul was obviously very, very well read. If you know ancient history really, really well, you'll know that in that line of scriptures, uh, Paul actually referenced two Greek poets of the day. Uh, in other words, he didn't come to them with all kinds of words and terms that they did not understand. He was preaching to their heart. He was preaching in a way that 
he knew that they would understand. And it tells us something of Paul that he was very, very well read, that he was very intelligent, that he had a very keen awareness of what their culture was like. And he did not have this unrealistic expectation that they immediately were going to look and act and dress and all be like him. He knew that they were lost. He knew that they came from a city that was given over to idols. And he spoke to them where they were. And I think there's just a really good lesson in all that for us in our own evangelism. To take someone who's never been in church before and then for us to come up to them and say, you need to be washed in the blood. That's going to scare someone. You say that too close to Halloween and they're going to think that you're just playing a joke on them. We understand that. Christians understand that. We're well read in the scriptures. We get it. But boy, there are so many that don't. Do you know how many people there are that don't? You, again, as we've seen from LifeWise, which is the organization that's hopefully going to be starting here in this community of being able for public school students to have Bible content teaching throughout the day. Uh, we've seen that even recently where it's like you have a classroom of kids that are even up fifth, sixth grade, and you say, who are the parents of Jesus? And none of them even have a clue. That's the culture we're in, folks. And we need to remember that. We need to remember the culture that we're in. And when we share the gospel, use plain and simple terms like Paul did. Speak to the way in which their hearts receive it and understand. And make sure that we don't allow ourselves to just become a bubble of Christians where we only know how to use the terms that only we understand. It will hinder us and hinder us greatly, I believe, in our witness. But one way or the other, I digress. The next point that Paul brings up in this crescendo of this story, this sermon is that God is both rescuer and judge. Uh, look to verse 30, and it, we obviously know that Jesus is a rescuer, but Paul relates to that when he says God has commit, commends men everywhere to repent. Uh, it's, Paul's making it plain that God has said to his people, I'm, I'm throwing out the life preserver. Uh, take hold of it. And it's not like here's the sinners drowning in the waters of sin and God throws the life preserver way over here and they have to expend all this kind of energy to try and get over to it. That's not the picture. The picture that Paul points is God has thrown the life preserver and it's right next to you. God is not far from any of us. The hope of God releasing this thing of salvation, this offer, this free gift of grace is that people would simply receive this thing that is indeed Free. It says in Revelation 22, verse 17, it says, And the Spirit and the Bride, which we would understand to be the Spirit of God and His Bride, which is the church. Somebody say the church. The church, that's us. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So the message that God permeates out of the world is come and drink freely from this free gift this water of life and oh by the way it's free and this is also the same message the spirit and the bride you and i say to the world come and experience take hold receive the free gift of grace that he has won on our behalf he is indeed a rescuer and if there's any part of the sermon any part of the truth of god that we ought to clap for it ought to be that one because it's awesome that our lord is a savior he's a rescuer and he's a redeemer and there is salvation found in and no other. Boy, what a blessing it is to be in church today. Amen. You could be worshiping a false God today. But the spirit of truth has drawn us and given us the message of the gospel to tell the world that he's a rescuer. In no linguistically hoop-to-jump-through kind of way. In simple, plain terms that God is a rescuer and you're the one drowning. And oh, by the way, the life preserver is right there next to you.
Will you receive it? Oh, I pray with every fervent fiber in my being that if there be any in New Covenant Community Church whom he is not the rescuer of yet, receive the free gift of grace by faith. Oh, I pray that this would be the morning. I pray that you would not just shirk this off as some stupid thing. He's the rescuer. You're the one drowning, dear sir. You're the one drowning, dear madam. You are the one that needs to take hold of that life preserver that is not far from you. You just receive this free gift of grace by faith. By believing in what it is that he's done, believing that he's the son of God, believing that you're the sinner and he's the savior. And that's the way in which you receive this free gift. It's by faith. You don't swim and strive. You just receive by faith. Man, that's good news. There's never been greater news. Look to verse 31. And we know that God is a judge. Paul says, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man. Somebody say the man. By the man whom he has ordained. We know this to be Jesus. He has given assurance of this by all, by raising him from the dead. It says in Isaiah 33 verse 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. And of course, this is speaking specifically to God's people. And it also goes on in that verse to say, and he will save us. God is a rescuer and a judge. These are the things that Paul preached on that big rock called Arapagus or Mars Hill. And the implications of these things, of God being a rescuer and God being a judge to those that have willfully rejected him, that have maintained their rebellion against God for the cause of the sin that they love. I can't think of anything more dreadful than the rescuer and the judge being the same person. And Jesus is. There's no greater dread than to think that the one that will judge mankind is the one who has also offered redemption and to know that there are people who have willfully, because of the unrighteousness that they love in their hearts, that they, that they will have rejected the rescue of the Savior and are also judged by the same. That's a terrifying thing. It says in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But boy, when you take those realities, if you're a child of God, if you have come to God with a contrite heart, if you've received, not by your striving, but by faith, belief in your heart, you receive this free gift of grace by faith and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and a mansion is being built for you and you're a citizen of heaven living out these final years on earth. Boy, these realities of Jesus being a judge and a rescuer are awesome. It's awesome that he's the rescuer and he's the judge. It doesn't get any better than that. That he himself is the one we've offended. He is the one that has the right to judge us. And it says, I've given you this free gift and you've received it by faith. There's nothing greater than that. It doesn't get any better than being rescued by such a judge, by such a rescuer. And even the fact that he is a judge, all of the things that you and I experience in life, all of the heartache, all of the hurts, all, all of the... All of the wickedness that we see running rampant, all of the things that the scripture says that would absolutely happen, the spirit of lawlessness would increase, and the last days perilous times would come. All these things that you and I are all experiencing right now, we know that none of it's just going to get away being wrong forever. You and I can rest and rest completely with utter certainty that God will be the perfect judge and every judgment will be 
perfect. So we don't have to be the ones to judge. We don't have to be the ones to try and get vengeance. It's his, says the Lord. We don't have to worry about those things because as his children, these realities are indeed wonderful. Uh, Worshippers, if you would come and begin now to minister to the Lord in music. And I just want to, as we land all this whole thing, I just want us to look to verse 32 as they come. Look to verse 32 as we see the ending of all this. We see where the pieces land after the crescendo of Paul's sermon there on that big rock. I'd like to go to that rock someday. Some of you have to come with me. It'd be fun to stand up there and just kind of, you know, do you think Paul stood on this rock or this rock? It'd just be fun to think about that. Verse 32. And it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. If the story ended there, it'd be like one of those movies with a depressing ending, wouldn't it? And all of us have seen those films where it's a a sad ending and the good guy loses and wickedness prevails. And you leave watching a film like that, you just kind of feel sick Man, I'm grateful for verse 34. It says, however, somebody say however. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Arapagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I'm going to meet Dionysius someday, and I'm even going to know how to say his name because I've read it before. Someday I'm going to meet a lady in heaven. And she's going to say, hi, my name is Damaris. And I'm going to say, oh, I remember hearing about you. You got saved when Paul was preaching on that big rock. You heard the gospel and you received it by faith. And that's why you and I are standing up here now in this eternal heaven forever in the presence of the Savior. Because the salvation that Jesus has won, we both received by faith. It wasn't about us. His Spirit drew us into it. We repented of our sin. And now we're His children. And now that these great realities, these truths of God, and I don't even want to pretend like these are all the truths of God, we're not even scratching the surface with omnipresence and omnipotence and Him being rescuer and judge and all these things. We're not even scratching the surface. But for eternity, his children will be enjoying these things. And yet, simultaneously, through the greatest dread of those who have rejected him. So the question on the tables this morning is, are these things your greatest dread? Or are they the greatest wonder? They don't have to be your greatest dread. And my prayer is that you receive him by faith. And oh, that God would give us. I want my heart to be provoked. I want my spirit to be provoked inside of me. In the same way that it was for Paul. As he saw people given over. As he saw the cry of the human heart to worship something. And it was something false. He was supposed to just be there waiting for Silas and Timothy, but he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand seeing the idolatry. He had to go and confront them in the church. 
He had to go and confront them in the marketplace. And God help us that we see that we should be confronting it on the political spectrum also. We absolutely should. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should permeate every area of life. And, and, and if you have friends and family members to say, well, church should just stay out of politics. No, they need to be in the center of the rock. They need to be at the center of the Areopagus. They need to be standing on Mars Hill, preaching to all of them that Jesus Christ reigns supreme. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that as, oh, as this community grows, as those people from Intel just flood this community, Stir our hearts inside of us, God. Make it such that we can't stand to say nothing, Lord. But that we preach the gospel on all these fronts. And that so plainly we can tell people about the truth of God that, that for those that have rejected, for those that willfully have grasped onto their sin and their unrighteousness and they, they don't want to hear the truth because they love their addictions and they, they love the pornography and they love the perversions and help us say with love and great compassion that this God is their greatest dread and Jesus is your children would you awaken and afresh in our hearts that these things, maybe even these terms that we've heard of since we were young people in Sunday school, that you're omnipresent, that you're omniscient, that you're omnipotent. I pray that we would yet again as believers, and even for some of us that have been believers for a long, long time, that our hearts would be wrecked anew by these realities the truth and the heart and the character of our God that is so perfect and encompassing all power and present in all things and knowing all things that, that we would find our greatest joy and our greatest rest in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we love you. And as we sing that you're awesome and that you're great and that you're the Savior of the world and that our hearts would just be moved time and time again and be filled with the Spirit time and time again. That we would just love our Savior. That we would just be still and know that you're God. That all the, all the distractions and all these things of life that just move at a feverish pace. That we'd quiet our hearts before you and see what really matters. Jesus, we love you. We praise you in this place. Make us workers in the ministries you've called us to and provoke our spirits inside of us as we see the folks that are around us that were much like those folks in Athens all those years ago. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all the church says,